What up? This is Dart Adams, and this is episode 41 of Dart Against Humanity. Uh, yesterday was 404 day. Huge day in the uh, beat culture community. Uh, Roland did this entire campaign uh, with the aid of uh, DiBiase and his wife, who actually filmed a mini documentary talking about the role that the uh, SP 404 has played in the burgeoning L.A. beat culture of the early zeros. People call them the aughts. I'm not big on that. I was, of course, uh, one of the many fans and proponents of uh, the Los Angeles beat culture. Written about it several times. Had my own um, beat culture podcast called uh, The Scrunch Face Show, which ran between 2010 and 2011 during the early days of uh, SoundCloud, Bandcamp, uh, Mixcloud, when people were still sending each other uh, zip files <laughs> full of beats, uh, sometimes with cover art, a, a lot of times not. Uh, folders that a lot of times we didn't want to actually have to add to our iTunes playlists because we knew that they were loose beats and sometimes they weren't always ID3 tagged. So we would play them in VLC or another outside player and then later once we figured out everything we would take it re-tag it if we had to uh find some cover art to put together so it would be to get so it would actually be you know something that wasn't loose and then we would re-put it into our um iTunes and then that's how it ended up on a lot of our spot um our iPods or whatever handheld device we had better have been an iPod Zunes, come on fam. So I had an iPod Nano, then my brother got an iPod Classic. I think it was like 60 or 80 gigs or something. Then later I got another um, iPod. uh, And I believe that was the last one that I had. It just got to the point where it didn't make sense for me to be walking around everywhere with an iPod. But anybody who remembers me from those days will tell you. I never went anywhere without headphones on because I always had an iPod loaded with music, new music that I was listening to because at the time I used to, uh, between 2007 and 2010, I had a blog called um, Poisonous Paragraphs and on it I had um, What's New in Dart's iPod, which was a review blog. I reviewed everything if you go back through that site everything if you're trying to think of a um a notable album or beat tape or mixtape from between 2007 and 2010 that dropped especially august 2007 and 2010 that dropped and you want to know like when it came out or how i uh, how i felt about it it's reviewed it's right there uh i did later reviews on a site called um blogger house but blogger house no longer exists it's no longer online because i had so much stuff on there and the point is that i had a podcast again called scrunch face show which was a beat culture podcast i remember uh we had a lot of interviews i played a lot of beats a lot of joints that were like forever preserved that era of the beat culture in amber gone forever i thought I'm talking to my boy Haslow, and I'm saying how much I regretted that 
I didn't do my due diligence <clears throat> in trying to preserve it or save it. Because I, you know, I kind of thought it would always be there because it was always on that server. People could always stream it. They could always download it. Then one day it disappears. And I'm like, yo, if you could talk to Eric, Eric Coons, who owned the site, uh, when they reminisce, who we turned his site into Blogger House, and he actually housed the site that you could stream and download uh, episodes of uh, the Scrunchface show from. It's like, does he have any of those episodes or anything up? And he tells me, he's like, hey, uh, the guy I did the show with, who's a remixer, engineer, MC, uh, St. Mike. He tells me, he's like, uh, I think Mike has a whole bunch of those files and a whole bunch of those episodes. And I'm like, word? Yeah, talk to him. Because he still works with Mike. Mike, like, engineers stuff for him. Albums, full projects. Mike's the man. Mike hits me on email with some files. He has full files of the of of the um the joints I sent him because I would send him all the music or I would send him 85 to 75 to 85% of the music and Mike would add in his own joints because Mike of course was a producer, remixer, he just finished people's albums. So he would have exclusives too. And we would have the entire playlist he would put into a mix that we would play and we would do join at a time, just join at a time, just join at a time. Then we would stop and go through everything, and then we would have the guests on. But I used to come up with part of the order. He would come up with the later part of the order. And he sent me some of the files. He has some full episodes. There were 52 of them. He doesn't have all of them. He has some full episodes, and he has some folders of beats that I no longer have. I had a hard drive, an external hard drive that I had on a table for years. One day I get up to leave to answer the door to somebody delivered food or something. Wooden table. The hard drive falls off the table and hits the floor. I think nothing of it. My brother, who's the technical guy, tells me the needle. I didn't know there was a needle in, in external hard drives. Says the needle's likely done and I'll never be able to get anything off that hard drive unless I spend hundreds of dollars to recover it. Now... At the time, I did not have hundreds of dollars just lying around. So he pretty much told me that hard drive is done. I had everything on there. So that was out. So having Mike send me these files and me listening to old episodes, like the exclusive show episode 40, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, you probably never heard the show, but that brought me back instantly. And I'm going to talk about today's episode. What began my obsession with hunting for music? Now, depending on when you were born and how you relate to music, it's going to be different. If you were a child who grew up during the P2P era where your idea of hunting for music was uh, going through Napster or Soul Seek or I don't know any of the other P2P sites, E Donkey, 
if you were somebody who preferred LimeWire or Kazaa, you have a very different experience from someone who started out the way I did. Now, I'm not really into saying this was better, this was better. It was just different because of limited technology and the way we heard music and the way we accessed it and the way music was played or given to us. That completely changes our outlook, right? Again, I was a kid. I grew up in a house with music. Typically, it was the music my parents played in the house. This is crucial. The music my parents played in the house, my, my parents' music collection, the music that my big brother and big sister, my big brother, six years older than me, my big sister's eight years older than me, uh, played in the house, was my first uh, foray into music. Upstairs from me, I had two neighbors who were also family friends, who were extended family, who were 10 and 12 years older than me, I believe. So they put me on the music, a child at three, four, five, should never be into. No three-year-old gets into prints on their own. They just don't. No three, four-year-old knows Patrice Russian and Rick James inside and out. They just don't. The average five-year-old isn't in love with uh, Tina Marie back in those days. They're just not. So these are the things that made me uh, fall in love with music. Moreover, when I heard a DJ play certain records at a party, I was obsessed with where the records come from and what they were. I needed to know what everything was. I'd hear a song. I want to know what the song is because I want to hear that song again. I'm I'm laser focused. I need to know what that song is now. Another thing we need to get, get across. Most of the records that I heard as a kid, if they weren't on the radio or I heard them in the home, a lot of them were 45s. 45, because the industry was not LP-based yet. It was single-based. Singles came on 45, 7 inches. Two-sided, side A, side B. So that meant that there were a lot of just random 45s just lying around and you had the adapter, you put it in the middle and you just play them, just play them, play them. And you have to be trusted in order to play the records. You have to, tr that you have to convince your family that you can take care of a record properly. You put it on, put the adapter in, take it off with care, Put it back where you got it from. Exactly where you got it from. That's hard to trust a child. Kids eat paste. Kids go to the bathroom on themselves. Kids put marker on themselves. Can you imagine being a three, four, five year old having to be so mature that <laughs> your family trusts you with records? They're precious records. Because a lot of these records you can't just go and get again. These are old records from the 50s and 60s. Now, once we get to 1976, it changes. Singles 
are no longer on 45 7-inch format. Singles are start with a, a song 10%. Uh, that joint, uh, I think Double Exposure, 19, uh, April 1976. That's the first 12-inch single during the disco era. So now, you can look at somebody playing a record. It looks like an album. It's a single. So this changes everything now. Because our obsession with searching for these songs, which a lot of times somebody covered up the label or scratched it off or something because they didn't want everybody to know what they were playing. Sometimes they just didn't care. You had to figure out what color was the sleeve what was the label? What was that? <clears throat> now you're going to go searching. And all you have in your head is the harmony. Now you have to keep track of all these harmonies in your head. Or who the artist sounds like. That's crucial too. Does it sound like, does it sound like James Brown? Does it sound like uh, Marvin Gaye? Does it sound like Martha Reeves? Does it sound like Diana Ross? It sounds like Barbara Mason. What does the instrument sound like? What era is it from? Is it sped up? Is it so? Are there strings in it? They call that sweetening. Are there strings in it? How long is the song? Is it under three minutes? All these give you clues as to what era was from. Light blue label. Dark blue across the top. It looks like a ranch. Black label. Uh, multicolored at the top. All these are logos for labels between the 50s and 60s. Uh, another light blue label could have been Invictus. The, and we had to go search like as a quest. Go search for this record. Find this record. Or we'd hear it on the radio and like, that's it. Run to a, get a piece of uh, paper. Find a pencil or a pen. Write that song down. I found out later when I was I found out later when I was growing up in New York that there was a guy at records at a record store who had written down a book of breaks, knowing knowing that someone one day was going to come and ask him for these breaks because the kids were just frantically searching for certain breaks, list of breaks. He wasn't the only one. There were other people that kept a catalog of breaks and records. Now imagine being a little kid. And trying to search for these breaks and records like they were uh, Nintendo codes or Nintendo clues. In the late 80s, early 90s, my brothers and I had a manila notebook that we called our Nintendo code book. And we put all of our codes, all of the cheats in this manila folder. Nothing made my penmanship as good as it is aside from writing graph than having this code book there was no way in hell I was going to do all this work playing a fucking video game write down the code and not be able to read it and not be able to properly write it back into the thing because that means that I just wasted the two hours and almost got carpal tunnel syndrome playing whatever game and by the way could I just say that the worst the worst code system ever the guardian legend why why did I even waste my time? Back to the subject at hand. 
we were obsessed with finding these records, these songs, these beats. And when I say obsessed, I'm not talking about it's something that we did for a couple years and then stopped doing. I remember being a kid, I was a B-boy. I was a B-boy between like 1981 and 1985. Somebody tapped me on the shoulder one time. I went to the floor in 85. I was like, hey, don't do that no more. It's not cool. I stopped doing it. It wasn't until like 94, 95 where I saw the resurgence and people were like, oh, we can do this again? I got to relearn it. Meanwhile, there were B-boys and B-girls who had never stopped. They were doing it on the underground. I'm making this point because this is something that I started doing around 79, 80, 81, and I never stopped doing it. I'm about to turn 44 in August, and it's still something that I do. There's a beat or a song that I heard from DJ Mark the 45 King back in 1987, 88, 89. And I'm still trying to figure out what record it's from. To this day, 30 years later or more. That is a unique thing. There are people that stop doing things from their childhood because they typically stop when you get a certain age, you just age out of it. You stop doing it. Music is one of the things, the few things that I never stopped doing. I used to love to draw because I wanted to draw comic books. Once I got past a certain age, I saw the other people in my art classes and I saw how much better than at art and drawing that they were than I was. So I had to, I abandoned it because I knew I was never going to be as good as I needed to be. The things that I saw in my head, the things that I wanted to do with my hands, I couldn't make it happen. So I had to reconcile that fact. I had to just get it across that, hey, you can't do this. But the beauty of the comic book medium was I didn't have to draw. I could find someone else who could draw and I could explain to them what I wanted using their language. Explain because I was part of the same world and then I could write the books. Which is something I didn't expect I would be doing. I thought I would be the penciler anchor. I didn't think that I would be the writer slash co-creator. But with music, and oh, and this is a conversation that I had last night. I was talking to Easy Money and um, Champ Chuck. Uh, last night, I went to this event for, uh, there's going to be an interactive store slash studio in um, the Somerville Bowl Market area of, of Boston. It's going to be called Union Sound. Uh, I was next to it is a store called Vinyl Index Record Store, Incredible Record Store, uh, run by 7L of 7L and Esoteric and Zarface. And we were talking about how when we grew up, we would be intimidated to go into um, music stores because, of course, we loved this genre of music that was ostracized and marginalized and pushed off to the corner. And when we saw a drum machine 
or anything that was used to make rap music. It looked like, you know, magic. It was this wondrous piece of technology, like it was fucking from the Cree, you know, or the Shi'er. Marvel comic book references. Something else I didn't grow out of. Thank God. And we would just wonder at it, marvel at it. Ooh, ah, uh, how does it work? I don't know. You know, shit like that. And they'll be like, yeah, get out of here. You can't afford that shit. Get out. Now, the beauty of Union Sound is that it exists clearly, it exists purely to motivate or to interest youngsters in beat making. You could touch it, do this. This is what you want to do with the sounds or whatever. Because again, the machines that we use to make music and, and make beats and change the world as we know it, very few people actually read the manual because what we used that drum machine or that, mach- or that mu- music machine for was not the purpose intended by the creators. Roger Lynn did not make his machines to make the music or to do what we did with them. And that is the beauty of hip hop. Wrangler jeans didn't did not make their jeans for the blacks and Latinos in the Bronx and surrounding boroughs in New York City or in the Northeast, which spread all throughout the Americas. He did not. They did not make their their joints to be used the way we wore them or what we did with them, the modifications we made to them. Now, back to the obsession with records. Another phase of our obsession with records came when the sampling ever began in music. Before, it was just trying to find the records a DJ played. Now, it's trying to find the records that were in the song that we heard out of the box on that particular radio show that actually played rap. Where is that sound coming from? Where are those drums coming from? Where are those horns coming from? Where's that that vocal part coming from? What song is this? Some of these records we recognized. Marvel Collins. James Brown. No, it took a while to like recognize other joints that maybe were in our parents collection. You know, you figure out who Clyde McFadder is. But it started this obsession. Well, this new obsession. I need to find this record because what happened a lot of times is um, somebody would put out a record with a certain sound or a certain drum beat or something. And then you'd hear it again and then again and then again. And it was twofold. One, that was either a record that someone found and they found something that was dope. Or there was a collection of um, the compilation drum or sample series that was put out and people gravitated to one 
joint and then they were like yo i need to have that so they went to record store and the thing is that in that time too this is the crazy thing about the obsession the obsession part people didn't take these records and put them out for display like this is what you're looking for you had to go to the counter you had to find a specific person or talk to somebody who would direct you to the specific person then you would ask for the specific record then they would sell it to you so it was like a fucking secret society like the goddamn Knights Templar and this quest and this small community of people who knew what you were looking for knew what you were talking about when you walked into a record store and you're looking for something and you're looking and you're looking around and you realize wait I feel like the people here know what I'm talking about or know what I'm looking for but I don't find it here. So you go to the counter like, hey, um, yeah, I got a question. Yeah. Y'all got. And it's like you had to say the damn password. Now, this continues, of course, I've covered um, the new diggers era, which was a. Uh, 1992 to 1994 piece that I wrote for Medium, which people have been hounding me to turn into a um, either an ebook or a long longer form um, situation. I'm going to look into that in the near future. But again, that covers the post Bismarcky uh, court case, where for the most part, artists were implored to list all of the records that they sampled and cleared. And when people opened up the liner notes for an album or a tape, more than likely, CDs were later, they saw, again on the last episode, I talked about looking through liner notes when I went through the um, A Tribe Called Quest. They saw the names of the albums, the names of the artists, Ran to the record stores. But by that time, the people that owned the record stores were hip. You would run in there trying to look for, you know, Idris Muhammad, you know, or whomever. Weldon Irvine. You'd go to the store and then you'd realize, wham, look up. It's in plastic. Twenty five dollars with a piece of paper inside it with a list of all the rappers and rap groups. Who sampled it and the song. Oh, that record cost $25 now. Before somebody hit the person, that record was three or four or five dollars. That 45 that you could have picked up for 25 50 cents before. Now it's off in a special section with other 45s. And now it cost. 10, 12, $15. That automatically drove us to try to find new records. And this is how a lot of new catalogs got rediscovered. This is how a lot of artists got um, popular because people went looking for alternatives. And this is how a lot of records ended up becoming popular and sampled uh, in this later eras. When the new 
when the new drum machines came out and the new joints came out, the uh, EPS 16 Plus, the ASR 10, the MPC 3000. Then later on, when we get through the um, the initial part of the um, the underground era, beginning in 1997, or what was the Jiggy era on the mainstream side, then we get the MPC 2000 introduced before the MPC 2000 um, joint where you could actually flip up the screen. The screen was just down. I think that was 2000 into 2002. The XL. This changed everything because the albums and the songs that we found in this era the way they were sampled and used was heavily influenced by the particular machine or the technology that was used when it was sampled or manipulated the same way when people got their hands on the rolling gear, the 303 and the 404, it changed the way the music sounded because they had grown up in an era where all of this innovation had happened and they heard how music had changed. But then they're coming in an era where these kids grew up off Dilla and Madlib and DJ Spinner and DJ Scratch and they had were their entry points were the Pete Rocks, the Premiers, the Dr. Dre's, you know, but they also loved Battle Cat and DJ Quick. You know, but they also knew Sean J. Period, <clears throat> DJ Spinner, LP. Charlemagne. Minnesota you know everybody from Hyro because everybody from Hyro produces that's another insane thing to just think about I would look at the line of notes from a Hyro album be everybody's name like, everybody also shout out to Shock G from um, Digital Underground we're going to approach the 30th anniversary of that album coming up but the obsession with the beat, with the song, with the sound is what drove us. And I'm standing there at 43 and Vinyl Index last night. And we're talking about records. We're talking about songs. We're talking about particular uh, uh, records that we heard, whether it be from Just Blaze, whether it be from... um. Whether it be from Bank, whether it be from um, a Kanye West back before he turned MAGA. Um, we're talking about beat miners. We're talking about DJ Quick. We're talking about Dre. We're talking about like uh, Sir Jinx. Uh, Marley Mall. Uh, we're talking about DJ Mark the 45 King. Said G. We're just going back and forth talking about all these records. EPMDs, the cover of um, Strictly Business. When we saw (laughs) the gear that they had on that album cover and we were like, what? Are they on a spaceship? 
I remember talking about what blew my mind as a kid when I saw the cover of Just Ice Back to the Old School and there's a cartoon drawing of Mantronics holding a 909 and it looks like uh, like a weapon that a Marvel character uses. It looked like a gizmo that like um, Reed Richards used to beat Annihilus from the negative zone. Comic book references. I know. God damn it, Google. <laughs> Yesterday, uh, my boy Uncle Sam wrote that one of the dope things is coming up in Boston is that somebody will come to Dart Adams and ask him about you, and he'll tell you your entire um your entire uh, career and life story. And I wrote, it was like, yeah, I felt like Uatu the Watcher, and he was like, I don't know what that means, but. <laughs> And I'm like, yo, comic book reference. So I realized how many of the references I'm making fucking comic book references. And in the, even with this, in this day and age where so many people are into MCU films and everybody's waiting for Endgame to come out. Holy shit. It's, um, Endgame's gonna come out three weeks. And so everybody's waiting for uh, Endgame to come out. People still don't know that much. They're not that into, like, the Marvel Universe. Whereas I used to, just like I obsessively searched through record stores looking for that beat or that break or that horn stab. Uh, I also used to read and memorize um, the Marvel handbooks, the handbook to the or the guide to the Marvel Universe. I memorized every little detail about these characters. It's kind of insane. But in regards to music... It is unique to find something that you do not quit from your childhood going all the way to your adult life. I just walked into my room and I am sitting in front of several uh, United States Postal Service crates full of records. There's a milk crate in front of me, the, the rectangle kind, which is the last one I have. Um, and right next to it is a stack of old dusty. Well, it's actually in a, a collector, uh, a holder, which is got to be from the 60s. It starts with male vocalists, popular, female vocalists, classical instruments. And the last part is dance music and it's metal. And it looks like a triangle and it has just like these um these spots in place and it's made of metal too so it lets you know how old it is and this is what i have these same records from these are the records that for from my uncle and aunt and some from my mom first one to pick up diamond records incorporated loop de loop johnny thunder toby ann music pub corp teddy van music a teddy van production Diamond Records, 1650 Broadway, New York, New York. And the other side is Don't Be Ashamed by Johnny Thunder, produced by Teddy Van. If you don't know who Teddy Van is, Google him. I used to get into conversations about Teddy Van with um, Combat Jack. Next joint I pick up, Tamla. Uh, take This Heart of Mine, an album. T66 Moods of Marvin Gaye, 1966, a trademark of um, Motown Recording Company, produced by Robinson and Moore. It's 251, uh, Jobete Incorporated, BMI. 
flip it over it has the name Walcott on the back that is my um my father's uh last name need your loving want you back marvin gay marvin gay c paul produced by c paul 224 <sighs> this record's dusty as hell i'm surprised i don't cough that really went into my eyes uh another one tempe records Deep Down Inside by Bob and Earl, arranged, conducted by Renee Hall. House of Joseph BMI, I do not know what year this is. It's definitely the 60s, I'll tell you that much. Old Baby Doll by Bob and Earl on the other side, House of Joseph. It says, a Circa release on Tempe Records. I have to go on um, Discogs and look that one up. I'm going to pick up one last one from the 45s that I have here. Good Lord, this one's dusty. Full, full, full by the Impalas. Holy shit, the Impalas. On Cub Records, Cub Records, a product of Lowe's Incorporated, made in the USA. Um, the Impalas also made one of my favorite all-time um, 45 Speed Up. And I ran all the way home by the Impalas is the other side. I guarantee you, I think this is the record that, um, this is the side that people bought it for. Um, K9022. Now, I put that back. These records, these 45s, my brother and I... My younger brother and I, we used to just take time out and just play records when we were home from school. Uh, we went to school. We come home. Uh, there was a stretch of time where our big sister had a job or she was off at college in, at Wes Wellesley. Uh, our big brother, Dave, either had a job or he had gone to college um, in Northeastern, which was nearby. He had his own apartment and our mom worked late. So we would come home from work. Well, we would come home from school, not work. Well, it felt like work for me because I went to Boston Latin. Uh, we would come home. Uh, we'd be home pretty much by ourselves because we were old enough. Uh, and we would be left to our own devices. So you could do homework. You could play Nintendo, Sega, Genesis, Super Nintendo, go to arcade, do whatever, hang out with your boys. Or they were probably over the house. Um, or we could listen to tapes. Uh, record we, at the same time we're recording rap city recording your own tv raps we're recording video lp what have you but at the same time want to kill time let's just play these old records so that's what we did a lot of times we would play these 45s play these records learn them inside and out sometimes we had a tape in the t in the tape deck of the thing so we were to record certain records i remember one time um I thought I was a producer when I wasn't. I found a record by a brass construction. And I thought I had the illest loop in history. The record was scratched. And it just looped this joint called, and it just looped this joint. And it's just like, it sounds like the illest drum break. And it started over the illest drum break. And I recorded it. And we tried to rap over it. We tried to rap over a busted loop that was not made on purpose. This is before we bought equipment, but we just remembered all the records that we played and like, yo, one day when we put together an album, we're going to use this, 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 thinking that we're original in doing this. It wasn't until years later when I finally became a music journalist, when I discovered that that was what people did. I remember Mr. Long explaining, uh, I think he did it on a Combat Jack show. He explained that before he had equipment and he was just like a DJ prodigy uh, what he would do was he would find records and find parts of records 
and he would write down what the record was and he would write down what he needed and what he had to do. So when he finally went to a studio, he could put together his album. This blew my mind till I discovered also that this is the same thing Kwame did when he made his album. Uh, we passed the 30th anniversary of Kwame's album. So when he didn't have the equipment or the time himself, he had written down all the things he needed, all the records he needed and what he wanted to loop, what, where he wanted to put where. And then when he finally went in the studio uh, Christmas 1988, Paul C. helped him construct the brunt of the album that became The Boy Genius. And then I found out Q-Tip, of course, used to make pause tapes. You make pause tapes. So when he finally went to the studio and, and found an engineer and people actually knew what they were doing, he could put together his album. Same story with EPMD. These guys were all kids. They were all teenagers or very young. Went to a studio, didn't know what the fuck they were doing, knew what they wanted to do, had to find the engineer, explain to them how to make it. But the thing is that they knew what they wanted to make. They knew what records they wanted to use. They knew what parts they wanted to use because they had obsessively hunted for these records, found the record, and then knew what they wanted to do from listening to other people who did the same thing and and used, made this this alchemy, this magic, and made music. And I'm 43. I look back at the last uh, 12, 15 years of my life. I got out of uh, making music myself, uh, then got back into it. Uh, I became a music journalist. Uh, later on, I... Um, Helped out a bunch of people, uh, helped get some people deals, um, A&R'd some records, co-executive produced some records, executive produced some records. And like right in front of me is a crate with records that I either A&R'd, executive produced, did the liner notes for. And the crate is of significant size. And I never would have thought that that would have happened. When I was young, I used to read cassette tapes and liner notes and see names and crews and shout outs and um, inside jokes inside the liner notes. And I used to want to be one of the people shouted out inside an album. I also wanted to be one of the people who was listed in the credits of an album or uh, the album credits or the liner notes as A&R'd by, produced by. Is this by concept by liner notes by and here I am in 2019 speaking into an iPhone which is something I think I was going to be doing and I've done it and there's a book out there with my name on the front cover and hopefully there'll be another book out there with my name on the byline and it only took me to be like 44, 45 to make any of that happen. Also, um, my obsession with things from my childhood has led me to something else. Another thing I was obsessed with growing up was, of course, sports. Growing up in Boston, everyone's, well, not everyone, uh, a good amount of us are sports fanatics. And insanely obsessed with just sports and our legends and all these people because they relate directly to the community that we're from. So as I'm doing this podcast, I'm going to be doing another podcast starting very soon, going throughout the spring and summer 2019. It's going to be called the Boston Legends podcast. 
This one, I'm going to have guests and I'm going to be interviewing them. So I'm not just talking into a phone. I'm actually going to be at a setup like, you know, adults have, you know, actual real podcasters do. People who take their craft seriously. <laughs> uh, I'm going to be interviewing uh, people, journalists that cover Boston sports, know all these facts and things that most people don't know that we know, Bostonians, but the wider world doesn't know. Things that have probably been in books, but people don't necessarily haven't read widely. Um, stories that we pass around in our community, but haven't gotten out there to the wider market. Other cities have their legends in basketball, football, um, and sports. Boston, for some odd reason, ours stay in the in our region. It doesn't really get past New England. If I was to go to New York and start talking about King Gaskins, I might get a blank face. More blank faces. However, people can just pass King Gaskin's stories back and forth all day. The man's not here anymore. You know, I remember one time I mentioned Owen Wells. Everybody started coming out telling me stories about things Owen did on the court. Y'all don't know who the fuck Owen Wells is. Owen Wells is a legend in basketball. He went to the NBA. These are things that I would like to highlight. Like... Spider Bennett. You have no idea who Spider Bennett is. I've been hearing about Spider Bennett my entire life. Spider Bennett has a history. An amazing history. Y'all don't know who Jeep Jones, Clarence Jeep Jones is. If you were to Google Clarence Jeep Jones, I believe that man has a Wikipedia page. He should be a legend. On par with any legend from any other part of the country. But he isn't because he's a Bostonian and he's brown. These are the things I want to accomplish with my podcast, um, The Boston Legends, which I'm going to do in association with For Boston and Mathematic Athletics. I've told you before that I did a line, The Boston Legends online, do throwback jerseys, shorts, kits. This summer, we're going to do four more uh, first we're going to do Dana Barrows Dana Barrows went to a school called Zavarian uh, after that we want to do uh, one for Jamal Jackson Jamal Jackson passed away young he was actually killed before he went back home to Cleveland because he went to Cleveland he went to um, Cleveland State and he was going to be, I believe, a junior or a senior at Cleveland State. He had uh, aspirations to play in the NBA. His story hasn't been told. We have uh, Scooney Penn, who actually was a legend at Salem in high school. Uh, played with a B for the BABC in another story. He went to Boston College. There was a scandal that um, made him and his coach both leave Boston College. And he had greater uh, success at Ohio State in the Big Ten. Playing with Michael Red. That's probably where most people know him from. 
And then, of course, we have one of the all-time great, another one of the all-time great point guards, and probably one of the all-time great point guards in college basketball history, Wayne Turner. Wayne Turner, Boston legend, played at Beaver Country Day here in Massachusetts uh, from Mission Hill in Roxbury in Boston, which is responsible for probably churning out the best basketball talent in this entire city's history. Roxbury also produced the, as far as I'm concerned, the all-time greatest uh, Boston basketball player ever, which is um, Jimmy Walker, who was the father of Jalen Rose. I say after that, the guy is probably Patrick Ewing. Patrick Ewing is the best talent to come out of this region. Um, <clears throat> but by way of Kingston, Jamaica. Um, but that's one thing that I want to get across. So... That's a podcast that I'm starting. Uh, if you like this podcast, you'll love that one because I'm actually going to be talking with someone else and I'm not going to be dominating uh, all the time doing all the talking. And and I'm going to be reined in because I'm actually going to have points of emphasis that I'm going to be making. And it's going to be about the person as opposed to myself. I don't know exactly. The interesting thing is that I think it will be great for me. Because... I'm a person who overthinks everything, so I always get sick of my own voice and hearing myself talk because I think I've already belabored the point, and I don't, I won't have this situation here, and I'm doing something bigger than myself. That being said, I want everything I do to be a labor of love, something I'm passionate about, so it's not a chore every time I do it. I don't have to get up to do a dart against humanity. I don't have to goad myself into doing dart against humanity. I don't have to, oh God, here we go. I gotta, no. I just go to the app, put on next episode, press record and start speaking. I don't cut. I don't edit. I just go. And I would like for that to be the case with everything I do. You could call that authenticity, call it what you want. It's just me being me. And hopefully the audience responds to it and it resonates with them. That's all I can do.